You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to all of our listeners here uh, to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Today's topic is anti-democratic insurrections and populist uprisings. We're recording on January 11th, 2023, and we're joined today by Dr. Cynthia Miller-Idris of American University. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. And I'm also joined by Eric Langenbacher, who is the director of our Society, Culture, and Politics program. Eric, good to have you with us today. Thanks, Jeff. And can I just say at the outset that you have one of the best NPR voices that I've ever heard on like these podcasts and stuff like that. So <laughs> Very true. if you're a podcast voice, uh, uh, you know, for another career, just sometime saying. I'll tell a story of how I got my start in college radio as a news broadcaster, but we'll save that for some other uh, time. Um, uh, our idea today originated about a month ago uh, after German authorities arrested dozens of people who were suspected of planning a violent seizure of power. And we thought, uh, who better to talk to uh, than Cynthia Miller Idris? She's the founding director of American University's uh, Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. She's one of the leading scholars on extremism and radicalization, familiar to many of our listeners, I'm sure, from her frequent expert commentary in media and before Congress, among other places. She's also one of the elite group of repeat guests on this podcast. Uh, I would encourage anyone interested to go back and listen to episode 38, which we recorded in February 2021, um, just about a month after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And so as we get started here, I'm going to turn to Eric first uh, to sort of set the stage on the uh, so-called Reichsbürger uh, uh, Patriotic Union um, uh, plot, and, uh, and, and then we'll figure out where this leaves us and what this means for Germany, for the United States, and more, more broadly internationally. Thanks, Jeff. I just thought I'd share a couple of uh, facts about uh, what happened about a month ago on December 7th. Um, as Jeff noted, this is the impetus for our podcast today, but I'm sure that we'll talk about international connections and other incidents that have unfortunately occurred uh, after that. So on December 7th, there were spectacular images that were published around the world of the raid uh, that German government forces um, executed on members of the so-called Patriotic Union, which I believe is a subgroup of the Reichsbürger uh, movement. The Reichsbürger are, um, um, I can, I'm trying to find the right word, bizarre in some of their beliefs. Uh, they don't believe in the sovereignty or even the real existence of the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, so they believe that it's still the German Reich from, what, 80 years ago that's still the sovereign force uh, in Germany, uh, that there was never a, um, a final treaty at the end of World War II and everything like that. So um, some kind of bizarre and fringe ideas here justifying uh, what they do. Um, it should also be noted that there were 5,000 police that were involved in these raids on uh, uh, December 7th, including 1,500 special forces. So this was a big deal. 
uh, I think there were something like 130 different places or facilities that the police had uh, raided. So this really was a big grand um, uh, uh, raid, which is something that I would like to discuss a little later on, um, uh, 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 what that actually means, whether that was necessary, especially the kind of spectacle that was, I think, obvious to almost everyone and what message the government wants to receive. But we'll, we'll get into, into that. Again, just for kind of context, there are estimated to be about 23,000 so-called Reichsbürger in Germany today, um, and 2,000 of whom are prone and ready to use violence. But just for context, for our, our um, hopefully international listeners, this accounts for about 0.03% of the German population. So truly a kind of fringe group, which unfortunately has uh, such an outsized um, and negative impact on things. I also want to mention two other events because this didn't come out of uh, uh, nowhere. Uh, first, there was a Reichsbürger who shot an officer in Bavaria, I believe, back in 2016. And then also there were Reichsbürger involved with the attempted storming of the German parliament, the Reichstag in Berlin, back in August of 2020. So just a little bit of context uh, to kind of set the stage, but uh, Cynthia, please, we 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 value your insight. And especially, well, uh, sorry, I'm sorry to jump no, in, no, especially, ahead. you know, Eric pointed out how small the numbers are of people who, you know, adhere to these uh, these views. Um, so then that raises sort of the question, well, how seriously should one uh, should one take uh, a, a plot like this? And I think that uh, kind of gets us started off, Cynthia. So please. Yeah. Yeah. I would just um, first of all, uh, really happy to be here. Um, as, as some listeners may know, I was an AI CGS fellow years and years ago, um, a long friend of the, of the center and of the work that you do and um, uh, follow this podcast as well. So uh, really happy to be to be here and to be back. Um, discussing this, there's an, a third sort of extra event that I wanted to raise, which was, was maybe just a couple of months before the um, the coup attempt or this, this massive set of arrests last uh, month were, was the arrest of a 75-year-old woman who uh, was also, I think, a Reichsburger and was uh, arrested. She's a professor too, and was arrested for an attempted um, kidnapping assassination plot on the health minister in Germany. So, you know, there there were several different points um, over the last several years, and especially over the last two, two and a half years that I think um, stand out about the Reichsburger, even though they've been around for a really long time, they've always been completely fringe. I think they have gotten infused now with uh, some QAnon beliefs that of course are exported from the US, which is really important to understand as well. Germany is the second, has the second largest QAnon following uh, in the world after the US. And so um, does have a high number of QAnon supporters. And there's this sort of core set of beliefs, first of all, that are anti-Semitic, but also that are um, really about this idea that there's some kind of deep state conspiracy um, that is uh, sort of puppet masters manipulating, uh, power seeking, and um, then there's a it's it's really like an umbrella or a spider web of conspiracy theories, and and not everybody in QAnon believes the whole thing, right? So some people believe there's child trafficking. Not everyone believes that part of it, but there's there's all different kinds of it, and it's been infused with a pro-Trump MAGA component in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world, it it carries different, uh, also kind of populist and anti-government type of sentiments that 
relate to this type of um, idea of control and anti-government um, conspiracies. And so, so it's not exactly a QAnon plot, but a, but there's definitely some sort of QAnon components or infusion of QAnon type beliefs underpinning some of this. And I think that's added a lot of fuel and why we're seeing some of the acceleration when you see that storming of the Capitol, a storming of the Reichstag uh, in August of 2020, you know, that's also related to these corona protests. So it's this this sort of trifecta of corona, shutdown, shelter-in-place protests, anti-vax kinds of sentiments, QAnon um, conspiracy theories, all finding a home among kind of Reichsburger uh, uh, minority fringe group that nonetheless has a very powerful set of believers. And that's part of what have, uh, you know, what is really notable about the arrests here, both the rest of that 75 year old woman who, as I said, was a professor, a woman, a 75 year old, all three of those things are pretty um, uh, unique when it comes to the typical demographics of an right. extremist actor plotting um, an assassination or a kidnapping attempt. And then in this recent spate of arrests of 25 people, uh, we had um, uh, uh, federal judge, military members, you know, quite highly educated folks as well. So I think that's, those are the things that kind of leap out to me right away is really unique and making it something worth really paying attention to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, the numbers of people arrested were, uh, there were a couple of dozen um, arrested and uh, it, it doesn't appear from the charging document that their plans had advanced far enough that they were in a position to execute um, uh, the uh, you know, an attempted seizure of power, but nevertheless, it seems to me that beyond the the prospects of of success, which are you know minuscule, um, there is also a, a, a sort of threshold that has been uh, crossed when you start talking about the willingness of people to plot in such a large network uh, to overturn a democratic uh, system. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the light in light of the US Capitol attack of 2021, the Brazilian insurrection, you know, the the this the sort of global bubbling up now and three different continents of a violent anti-government sentiment, um, whether successful or not uh is you know is a real concern and i often think of germany as the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world in terms of potential mobilization of far-right actors on the white supremacist side um because meaning that germany has such a greater amount of resources devoted to the monitoring and surveillance such that you can say there's 2,300 Reichsberger and 2,000 of them are gewaltbereit or ready to use violence. Um, you know, we would never have those kinds of estimates. We just can say, well, the Oath Keepers say they have tens of thousands of members, you know, or the, but, you know, we don't have that level of, you know, you can say there's 34,201, um, you know, right-wing extremists or whatever the number is this year in the Verfassungsschutzbereich, um, like there's there's a monitoring that doesn't exist. So as a result, I often think when something like this gets uncovered in Germany, the way the scandals with the military got uncovered in Germany a couple of years ago, we can almost guarantee that the same kind of thing is happening in other places that are not monitoring it, including in the US where all the conditions are just as ripe if not worse, um, for that kind of mobilization. So that's the other thing I think is really important to pay attention to is the extent to which we should 
be thinking about um, whether Germany catches more of this than other places. So, um, sorry, I had kind of zoned out for a second because I was trying to, on the side, uh, look for some AFD um, posters from back in the 2017 election, because, I mean, they've also been dabbling with conspiracy theories for a while, like something about, you know, protecting basic rights from the government, protect the Constitution from miracle and stuff like that. And because it made me think that, you know, um, we know that one of the uh, people targeted um, on December, December 7th was a former a AFD um, member of parliament and also a judge in Berlin named Bergit Malsak Winkemann. Um, and so I'm wondering um, when we talk about just, you know, how serious uh, this movement is or that these people are, I mean, what is their connection to larger, unfortunately, um, movements and parties like the AFD? So is this, like you said, canary in the coal mine, is this just the tip of the iceberg? Well, I think, you know, in general, I would say um, we all benefit, meaning democracy itself benefits from the fact that far right groups, both on the anti-government side and on the white supremacist or supremacist side more broadly, meaning Christian supremacy, Western supremacy, male supremacy, these incel movements, et cetera, they're very disorganized and they're characterized by a lot of infighting. Um, so they don't cooperate very effectively and um, typically across borders and within countries. And that's to everybody's benefit. So they, you know, in the U.S., for example, they tried on uh, in Charlottesville to hold a rally called Unite the Right. That was literally meant to bring them together across dozens of extremist groups. They failed. They were very well fragmented afterward. But what January 6th showed in the U.S. was actually that they could unite effectively on what I call the lowest common denominator, um, which in this case was election disinformation and massive belief in election disinformation, even though they don't normally agree. So you had on January 6th, such a large mobilization of people storming the Capitol in the US because uh, you had white supremacists in that mix, you had anti-government extremists and unlawful militia members, you had QAnon supporters, you had ordinary MAGA voters, you had you know, a whole range of folks, anti-vaxxers, anti-masks, or, you know, there are people there who actually would not normally agree with each other and who were there for different reasons, but came together on this lowest common denominator. And I think, you know, to, to the extent that that is happening in Germany or anywhere else, that's where we see the risk of real dangerous mobilization because that does show, and the January 6th did show, and we saw it celebrated globally among far-right extremists as a as proof of concept, if you will, that mobilization was possible across these disparate groups. So I don't know the answer to, you know, how effectively the Reichsberger are uh, are cooperating. Everything I've read and heard is not is the answer is not very effectively, and that's a good thing um, that they're that they're actually not that well organized. That they're kind of they're quite fringe. They're not you know they're not um, effective. And we want that lack of effectiveness to be the, the mode that, that carries forward. We want them to be ineffective. And, but I think my concern is that uh, when you see things like Pegida mobilization, right, which showed that you could mobilize a lot of people um, from very kind of mainstream middle class into the streets in peaceful protest, um, you know, educated middle class in in a kind of opposition of of a perceived enemy, um, those anti-immigrant or anti-Islam protests of the you know uh, a few years ago. 
you know, that was peaceful. That's great. It's, it's not violent, but you know, that was a kind of lowest common denominator moment too. I see where you saw, you know, more um, virulent white supremacist extremists, but also, you know, regular academics marching in the street in some cases. And so that was one of those surprising things. And I think when you see those common denominator moments, that's where we have the potential for, um, for more dangerous things to happen. Mm-hmm. Can I just reinforce before I, uh, uh, before Jeff speaks, can I just reinforce that point? Because I think that's really important for our listeners that, you know, the people involved with this, you know, Reichsburger attempted coup, the people at the Unite the Right rally, I mean, all these, like, they're from the center of society, right? So one of the other people that was very prominent in the December 7th raid, of course, was Heinrich the 13th, Prince Royce. I wanted to get that um, uh, out there so we don't forget the, these uh, these names, right? Who, you know, is a minor kind of aristocrat, but seems to be pretty prosperous working in real estate in Frankfurt, if memory serves kind of thing. So I really think that it's important to emphasize that that these are, you know, oftentimes very middle class, very kind of like upstanding pillars of the community in other contexts, that that's where this is coming from. And uh, I, I think that still surprises a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's a good point, uh, Eric. And I, I wanted to look now also at the official uh, response. Uh, and Eric outlined the the very sweeping nature of the security forces engagement uh, on December 7th um, in multiple uh, actions coordinated across the almost the entire country. Um, Cynthia, do you see this as sort of a helpful, almost shock and awe approach um, to to this to show that the state takes these uh, manifestations of, um, you know, of rejection of the state seriously and is going to act against them resolutely whenever there is the the potential or, or whenever there is illegal action happening? Is that also part of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you will know and and listeners will probably know that I am always the person to advocate for not law enforcement solutions, for non-securitized approaches, that we have to be looking at prevention and upstream problems and how do we intervene more effectively before things turn to, you know, the need for law enforcement. So um, so I say that so that so when I say that yes, I think this was a law enforcement warranted situation, I come from a perspective where I usually am not advocating for um for kind of a strong law enforcement solution. But I do think this is a case where um part uh, you know where part of the impact of that law enforcement response is a, a hoped for deterrence. Um at a moment when we're seeing mobilization of anti-government extremism bubble up from a lot of different parts of society. So there's the coronavirus, anti-corona protesters, anti-lockdown protesters, the continuing kind of like, you know, anger at the government. We have the uh, the type of sovereign citizen, Reichsburger type of uh, anti-government extremists. And then you know, thankfully, Germany doesn't have the kind of unlawful militia mobilizing that we're still seeing here, uh, in part because it's it's around a kind of love of guns type of culture that is that is pretty uniquely American and related to this kind of American history and mythology around um, revolution, I think. But uh, there's many different types of pockets of that anti-government sentiment that 
I think, um, I do think in a way it helps to have this very strong coordinated response. However, the, the side of me that I would just push back on it is to say, like, I would love to see that much energy, resources, and time also devoted to the prevention of, um, you know, persuasion by conspiracy theories at the same time. And to say, like, okay, we're going to spend however many million euro that costs to get, you know, mm-hmm. that much of a coordinated response, all those searches, all that prosecution. Um, let's make sure that we match that one for one, at least with preventative resources. And Germany's, you know, obviously doing more than anywhere else in the world on prevention investments. But, um, you know, I always, I think that this very strong law enforcement response can lend itself sometimes to investing even more in what is ultimately a Band-Aid solution of cleaning up a mess once we've already allowed it to kind of become toxic. Yeah. Can, can I push that point just a little bit more? Because, you know, there has been some criticism from the like mainstream uh, press um, about the way that the raid was conducted with 5,000 police officers and, and everything like that. And I'm not talking about the, you know, Alice Vida from the AFDs of the world that yeah. called it what a rollator putsch, right? Or like a walker coup, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, some people have even gone so far as to say that such a spectacular response, I mean, obviously they're trying to convey the message, I think, that they're not blind in the right eye anymore, which was long a criticism that was rightfully leveled at um, many of the security forces in Germany. But it might even be a little self-defeating, right? Because, um, you know, was the response commensurate to the actual threat? And it might actually lead, I don't want to say to a backlash, but to people downplaying the actual threat that's there because of this disproportional response. Yeah, it is hard to imagine why 5,000, uh, why, you know, why so much? I mean, but again, there hasn't been a lot of information about, you know, why 130, uh, you know, um, you know, properties were searched, what, and there, I, last I read, there were 50, you know, over 50 possible arrests to be made of which 25 have been made. So, you know, it's still possible that more will be coming out. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of information unraveling over the coming weeks and months. But, um, you know, uh, certainly it was a shock and awe type of situation. And I can see why, uh, you know, people would be critical of the amount of resources being devoted to that. On the other hand, without being privy to the insider information of how close the, you know, the threat was, it's hard, it's hard to really judge from the outside. And you know, the last time we talked, we uh, delved into the kind of cross-fertilization, even if it's not, uh, maybe there are not direct operational links uh, in some cases internationally uh, among the uh, far-right extremist uh, groups. And so I wanted to float that again and and uh, get your reaction uh, in, in that uh, respect. But of course, in the meantime, just a few days ago, we've seen the insurrection in Brasilia as a, you know, a a mob of people, that of course, invaded government buildings and caused extensive damage, um, and may have hoped that they would create enough um, that through their violence they would inspire or catalyze. A seizure of power by the army or the security forces there. Exact, their exact motives, I think, are still remain a little bit murky. But uh, I, I'd like to bring the Brazil uh, angle into this, and uh, especially since you referred to Germany as the canary in the coal mine. So yeah. what are you, Cynthia, looking for as you uh, assess 
um, the reporting from uh, Brazil, but also as you put it in this broader international context. Yeah, I think uh, I really think you have to see these three countries and the mobilization of anti-government extremism. And I would add to that the Canada, the Ottawa kind of trucker protests right. as a fourth case that was a little bit different, but also really shutting down government, shutting down, stopping, you know, uh, the ability to get to government offices right in the in the capital of Canada. Although it wasn't a storming of a capital, it was a different type of anti-government protest. Um uh, so I think, you know, we've really seen, and that spread also, you know, that spread across borders. And we had these attempted sort of trucker protests in the U.S. Um, and elsewhere, and maybe even some of the, you know, French, what's happening in France. I mean, there have been pockets of examples of other types of anti-government protests that I think are bubbling up and and where you're seeing the same type of thing. This was a seemed in Germany a little bit more a tighter group and more sophisticated type of plot happening. Um, uh, whereas the capital protests are more like mob um, insurgency type of things. And so, uh, including in Brazil, um, but, but there are enough parallels across all of those cases, I think, to start to see, um, you know, strong similarities. And so there are a couple of different things here. One, the ideas obviously spread across borders, even if the, even if there are not organized groups. And part of that is recognizing too that the vast majority of violence from the far right doesn't come from groups anyway. It never has. And so, you know, we in in the West, if you will, especially in the US, in the post-9-11 context, come to think of have have long thought of terrorism itself and countering terrorist action as organized as something that you, you know, you monitor groups, you surveil groups, you interrupt the plots. Um, because that's how Islamist terrorism worked. And there are hierarchical groups with a chain of command. And so our entire you know, counterterrorism infrastructure was set up that way. But globally, the far right, uh, you know, terrorist violent action, it's like less than 15% of, um, of terrorist attacks come from you know, members of, of, of people who have any kind of tie back to an actual group. And that's about the same statistic as on January 6th in the US. There are about 15% of the people who had any kind of tie previously to an actual group. So I think that that, that very much aligns with the idea that the ideas spread across borders. People are inspired by the ideas um, and the actions of other groups across borders. There's a lot of globally circulating conspiracy theories and ideas, and then they see these actions and are imitating them. And so whether that's the kidnapping plot against a Michigan governor, I mean, assassination attempts, actual assassinations and assassination plots happening um, against elected officials, the Paul Pelosi attack. I mean, we've had repeated um, sort of uh, attacks on elected officials, threats against elected officials, and then anti-government kind of mass action, um, whether that's uh, trucker type convoy protests or uh, mob insurgency at a Capitol or, or just even the armed protests at state capitals that we were seeing a lot of in the early lockdown era. So um, I am not surprised by that at all. Uh, and I think that these are exactly the three countries I would predict we'd see, Brazil, Germany, the US, the most of it happening because of what we know about the circulation of anti-government and other far-right ideas online. Um, you know, I would also, I will just point to our lab has a, um, has a, uh, a guide for parents and caregivers and, and, and other uh, community members on preventing, recognizing and preventing some of these uh, warning signs of far-right extremism and the mobilization of far-right extremism. 
And we've translated that into a bunch of languages. And the first language uh, that's in partnership with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the first language that was requested was from Brazil. They asked for uh, some folks down there for it to be translated oh, into Portuguese. So it, that was our first translated uh, guide. And then we now it's in Spanish and German as well. Um, but uh, you know, we really we really felt um, the the sense of need from Brazilian. Um, individuals and partners and groups who reached out to us and said, this is fantastic. Can you please, we're, you know, you don't know what we're seeing on the ground here. And this was two years ago uh, when we translated it. So I think this has been bubbling up for quite some time and, and is um, no real surprise uh, on our side. I, I would think that French and Italian might be the next languages to um, yeah, I'd like to see it in Russian. Uh, so there's 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 definitely some other languages um, that we need to get uh, to get the tools into the hands of folks. Yeah, can I pick up? Can I pick up on just one um, point that that we've been kind of circling back to again and again? So I guess what I find the most distressing um, about the Reichsburger um, raid. Um, all these incidents that you've talked about is, you know, they become a pattern and they start to, I don't know, gain momentum. They start to become normalized and people become desensitized to just the 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 right righteous shock that one should have when something like this happens. That's my greatest fear is that, you know, publics, the media are going to start to think that, well, you know, it's no big deal after all. I mean, we've had some things before and, you know, nobody died, right? And then next it will be, well, only, you know, six people died. I mean, that's not, a, so that's what I think is really the most kind of disturbing and, and distressing about all of this. Yeah, for sure. And we, you know, we've seen this for years on the white supremacist side with, you know, the, the terrorists in Oslo and Norway being inspired by American white, white supremacists. And then the Christchurch, uh, New Zealand shooter being inspired by Oslo and El Paso, you know, so uh, being inspired by Christchurch. And so you see this kind of like what they literally call saints and disciples, you know, culture in the, in the, the white supremacist violent youth kind of online subcultures, right. Where they, they, um, in, in forums and digital forums online, where they really try to, um, to, to inspire each other. I hate to use that word because it's just, it's a, it's an egregious thing to to say you're inspired by, and I think what we're seeing now over the last four or five years is, is similar types of things happen on the anti-government side, and uh, but we're not. It took us a long time, you know, I would say like a decade or more to really start to see. Even the UN, the UN just held held its first hearing. The UN Office of Counterterrorism held its first hearings on what we would call far-right extremism, they use a different word, racially and ethnically motivated um, extremism or something. Like in the fall of 2020, I think they issued the first report on it late last year. Um, so, you know, these have been seen by the UN and by other international bodies as the domestic problems of member states that should not be dealt with in any international way or collaborative way because we're interfering in other people's domestic politics. So certainly that's the take that the UN has had it's the take that a lot of diplomats have had, like, we're, oh, we're not going to get in mess, mess around in your domestic politics here. And I think we have to understand that these are, they're, they're globally linked, they're inspiring each other. And, um, and not just on the intelligence and security side, is there a need for information sharing, but there's also a need for information sharing and strategizing on the prevention side, um, what works and how do we interrupt these processes. 
and, and how can we collaborate better? That's one of the reasons why we're trying to translate as many of our tools as we can. And, and we also translate tools from Germany. There's a lot of great resources there mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And, and you know, at what, what matters uh, as well is how people in positions of authority define uh, what is out of bounds or in bounds. And that's uh, where, you know, I, just looking at the events in Brasilia, uh, we did a little bit of research to see what reaction there has been from the German um, uh, far right. And right. it's mostly been one of silence um, right. from none of the leaders of the AFD. Um, has there been any statement about, uh, you know, condemning uh, what the um, uh, the vandals and uh, insurrectionists in Brazil were doing? Um, the only uh, the only reference that I've found, at least, um, is a comment by the uh, parliamentary um, uh, whip in the AFD's Bundestag caucus, uh, who says, roughly translated, um, in in large democracies uh, like the US, the USA, um, uh, confidence in the democratic order is dwindling. Um, and you can't uh, fight this loss of trust with uh, with police uh, deployments, state repression, um, or uh, party bans. Um, so you know clearly an implicit uh, endorsement of the of the protesters uh, in Brasilia, um, uh, even if it's not quite so explicit. Um, and I think this also leads to. Um, a normalization like Eric was talking about. Um, uh, so I think that's uh, pretty remarkable. Of course, there's been a similar reaction uh, from the United States toward the events in Brazil. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I just, I want to pick up on one thing you said at the beginning, which is of, your, of, of what you just said about the um, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds, because I think one of the things that we struggle with in this country and certainly Germany as well and elsewhere is this question of like sort of free speech and and what's legal and the UN hasn't wanted to mess around because they, you know, this is the domestic problems of member states or whatever, like it's, and so I think sometimes we get so caught up in, in what's allowable or what's legal that we lose sight of what's um, needed to strengthen democracy or to, uh, to keep democracy thriving. And by which I mean, you know, when you think about a kind of public health approach to prevention or to strengthening democracy, you know, we, it's perfectly legal for people to, they can eat whatever they want, they can exercise however they want, but what public health interventions do is try to educate communities about sort of healthy eating habits and exercise habits and reduce the structural barriers through reducing food deserts or whatever it is that make people, you know, uh, have the ability to make choices that put their health in their own hands and, and reduce the outcomes that are undesirable, like cardiac disease or diabetes, even though it's perfectly legal for people to make those choices. And I feel like, you know, seeing it from that perspective is a way for us to, I think, see the prevention world is not about suppression. We're not trying to suppress free speech, but trying to better equip people with tools to reject propaganda is also a way of of kind of strengthening democratic outcomes. And so I think, you know, to the extent that we can move beyond a framework that is just thinking about um, what can we uh, what can we allow that that helps reduce some of that normalization that you're talking about as well, because um, the normalization happens when it's like, well, it's it's allowable. So, you know, we shouldn't do anything about it. Well, you know, it's perfectly legal to do lots of things. And we make all kinds of decisions about, uh, you know, how we're going to appear to the rest of the world every day because we live in social worlds together and we make a commitment to one another and the social cohesion of our communities and our nation. 
and so I think sometimes thinking about what's desirable is a better way than what's allowable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, two and a half years ago, I think the idea of um, you know, large mobs uh, trying to force their way into uh, parliaments and uh, government buildings in the capitals of industrialized uh, democracies would have uh, struck everyone as uh, absurd. Um, and now we've seen it uh, three times uh, in in Berlin, in Washington, in Brasilia. And uh, so, you know, if I try to uh, bring together some of the threads we've uh, uh, been pulling on in this conversation, um, I think, Cynthia, the one uh, that it seems most important is, uh, in a way, Germany as the canary in the coal mine, uh, because of the very um, highly developed, almost seismic infrastructure of of monitoring um, and identifying threats to uh, to the state, and uh, and so I think this is clearly a topic we're going to need to follow uh, closely. And you've really illuminated uh, our under uh, our our understanding uh, here, and uh, really want to thank you uh, for uh, for all the thoughts you've uh, brought to this discussion. Well, thanks for the great questions. It was a really interesting discussion. And uh, I keep hoping that um, anything I know on these topics becomes irrelevant, but it doesn't seem to be headed in that direction. <laughs> yeah, well, if you can work yourself out of that job, I'm sure uh, you, know, you, won't, you won't be the only one who's happy. Um, Cynthia Miller Idris, uh, a, a professor at American University uh, and longtime friend of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Thanks for being with us. Thanks to all of our listeners out there. And uh, we will look forward to having you uh, with us again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.